Hey y'all, welcome back to our podcast, Black Humans of Sam Houston. My co-hosts, Kyra Bell, and myself, Kenya Drake, will be interviewing people on campus getting captivating experiences of the distinguished, talented change makers of African Americans on campus. So stay tuned for more upcoming content and we'll see you soon. Hello, I'm Kyra Bell. And I'm Kenya Drake. And this is the Black Humans of Sam Houston podcast. Today we will be talking to an author and professor in the history department here at Sam Houston. Hello, Dr. Pruitt. Good morning, ladies. How are you? Good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, so my first question that I want to ask is, when did you fall in love with African-American history? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I would say probably sometime between elementary school and undergraduate school. So it was in 1977 when Roots, the saga of an American family, aired on ABC. Mm -hmm. I was in the fifth grade and it was extraordinary. It was, it was, it was amazing. Um, and of course I read the novel uh, as an undergraduate student, but this is the first time African-Americans as a collective body have this extraordinary pride when it comes to genealogy, heritage, history, understanding that fundamentally even though we are the descendants of slaves, that we come from a proud tradition of people who sacrifice much on our behalf. And at the same time, we are also the proud descendants of West Africans, not just the West Africans who survived the slave trade, the Middle Passage, the first Middle Passage, but the ancestors of communities, small communities, um, kingdoms, environments, societies that were built on a multiplicity of cultures and institutions. We saw that firsthand. I mean, we, we saw it, okay, uh, on television. So I think that was the beginning for me. Uh, and in high school, um, I continued my interest in uh, African-American history um, but it was probably as an undergraduate student at Texas Southern in the 1980s, taking mm -hmm. uh, civil, I think it was Civil War Reconstruction with Merlene Petrie, uh, Dr. Merlene Petrie, uh, when my passion and love for the Black experience in history really blossomed. And from there, uh, it just took off. Um, so I, I know that even as uh, a graduate student at Texas Southern in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, I still wanted to pursue law. I wanted to go to law school. But over time, I realized this is my journey. This is my destiny. Because it wasn't just about reading about the Black experience, reading African-American history, 
underlying understanding that history is about facts, but it's also about interpretations. And we interpret the facts differently. And very often history is written by the winners, okay, of mm-hmm. wars and uh, institution building, okay, movements. Uh, so as the descendants of millions of people, the world views as losers, we have essentially interpreted history in a very different way based on the winners. But it was in college when I began to understand uh, the nuanced uh, construct of history, uh, understanding that historiography, the interpretation of history was just as relevant as the facts. Wow. Okay. That was that was really clear. <laughs> I um I didn't see the original roots, but I saw the 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 remake, I guess. Um I think it came out in like twenty fifteen or twenty twenty eighteen or you, no, you excuse me, no. I think maybe it was about twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. Yeah. And I, I really liked that one. I've also like always enjoy learning about black history as well um ever since i was little so that was yeah, great. my parents <laughs> my parents made me watch the original roots they were like you're not going nowhere you need to watch this right now i was traumatized a little bit i was too yeah. young to be watching it but yeah. now how old were you when you first watched it i think i was maybe like 10 okay yeah yeah so i didn't really like understand all of that, of course. And it was just like, dang, we're watching this every day. Like I wasn't allowed right. to watch nothing right. else. They were like, we're finishing it now. I'm like, okay. I mean, it was really transformative. I mean, this is yeah. the first time we are watching a series in which the winners are African Americans, right? The mm-hmm. the victors are African Americans, and the villains are white. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I I don't. Can you think of a time? Can you think of uh, a program um, in which we've seen that kind of binary? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very impactful. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, you talked about, you know, your time, you talked a little bit about your time at TSU. Um, so what made you go to TSU for undergrad? Are you from Houston? Very good question. I'm originally from Detroit. Oh, wow. So I've spent my, I, I've, it's interesting because I left Detroit at age 18, right after high school. So I've spent my entire adult life in Texas. Uh, and that makes me a Texan. <laughs> okay. Uh, but at the same time, I am forever a Detroiter. Uh, so in high school, I was... Um, a mediocre student, you know, I was a really good student in elementary school and middle school and mm-hmm. high school. Um, I allowed peer pressure to kind of, uh, get in the way of my productivity. Mm-hmm. But I would also say that in high school, I wasn't always given the best guidance, wasn't given clear guidance. Uh, my guidance counselor just said, oh, yeah, just take whatever courses you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. really, I should have been really pushed to take foreign language, 
uh, literature and arts classes, those humanities classes. I was told, take, take everything. You know, you want to go to college, take everything. So take math and take science. And, you know, when I was in elementary school, middle school, I loved math. Even in high school, my favorite math class was geometry. And I was okay in in algebra. I hate that one. I loved geometry. It was phenomenal. But then I took trigonometry. Oh, and it was so confusing. Okay. Pre-calculus. I was completely confused in pre-calculus. Okay. Um, And even when it came to the sciences, I took uh, physics. I took chemistry. Uh, biology, but I really should have been geared toward the humanities. I really should have been given a lot more direction and guidance. Coming from a, a working class family, my mom finished high school. My dad didn't didn't finish high school. He dropped out of high school, uh, entered the uh, Air Force after the death of his mother, my grandmother. So I, I and again, I, I come from a working class uh, background. Uh, my parents, okay, my my aunts and uncles, working class, one of my uncles um, did a year of college, eventually uh, earning an associate degree. Uh, But the the point I'm making, I come from a middle, a a working class background. So we didn't get the push, the motivation to um, do well in school. And let me step back from that comment. I, I, because because we were pushed to right. do well in school, but we're talking about individuals who didn't um, understand college. They didn't attend college. My uncle did. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, my mother's triplet brother. He did. And he was uh, an enormous uh, in- inspiration for me. But at the same time, we talk about uh, first generation students. Um, for a particular reason, because first-gen students do not have parents who have completed college, right? And they understand the process of completing college and everything that entails. They understand the structure, okay, of of a college career. And maybe you did a a year or two of college, but you didn't finish. Uh, Even if you have an associate degree, um, you're still not considered a, a four-year college graduate. So your children are going to be defined as first-generation college students. And it is a real transition for first-generation right. college students. So it's going to be a transition for first-generation high schoolers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's only in the third quarter of the 20th century when the majority of African descent Americans are finishing high school. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, So systematic racism plays a huge role in generational challenges, poverty, right? Healthcare disparities, right? We, we, we know that, but anyway, getting to my situation. So, (laughs) you know, I graduated from high school with a 1.8 GPA not because I was dumb, not because I didn't have motivation. I worked hard, but mm-hmm. I was taking really difficult classes that I really should not have been in. I should have been in those classes that were geared toward my passion, my interest, you know. So uh, 
having a 1.8 GPA meant uh, that I was going to be limited as to the universities I could apply to. So I knew that I could apply to community colleges in the Detroit area, but mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to get away. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to get out of Detroit because again, um, I would say that adolescence was often unkind. Um, being a chocolate complexioned uh, African-American teenager um, trying to find herself, trying to define herself based on the views of others, uh, that meant that I spent a lot of time seeking approval. And in doing that, I made the wrong decisions over and over and over again. And for me, it was about uh, engaging in sex. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I, I tend to just tell everything with one question that <laughs> kind of indirectly <laughs> tied to the point I'm making. Uh, but I am saying that the decisions I made in high school played a role in where I was uh, my senior year uh, in the fall of 1983 and the spring of 1984 when I graduated. My financial aid advisor, bless her, I owe her so much. I don't remember her name, uh, but at the time she was a medical student at Wayne State University. So she is a practicing physician. Uh, uh, but but she was responsible for uh, all of the seniors at our high school. So I'm not even sure if this is still in existence, but all of the seniors in the Detroit area were assigned um, uh, a, uh, an assistant to help them with their FAFSA form, you know, the financial aid form that you are responsible for completing. Again, this is the first time we're doing it. Right. Uh, So she recommended Texas Southern to me. And I owe her so much because she said, number one, it's a historical black college. Number two, uh, TSU at the time uh, did not have a GPA requirement. So as long as you finished high school, you were eligible. As long as you finished high school and uh, completed one of the standardized tests, you were eligible to uh, apply and get into the institution. Uh, and number three, I was interested in pre-law. And she said, TSU has a law school, Thurgood Marshall yeah. School of Law. And at that mm-hmm. time, I didn't know Thurgood Marshall's extraordinary <laughs> history, right? I didn't know anything about uh, uh, this Plessy v. The I'm sorry, the uh, sweat decision. Okay, didn't know anything about um, uh, uh, the uh, sweat v. Painter decision of 1950, right. which helps explain Texas Southern's uh, creation. Uh, but I applied, and the rest is history. <laughs> I got in, uh, and it was um, maybe the best decision of my life, thanks to yes. this amazing. Uh, medical student uh, who was a financial aid um, assistant mentee. That's great. Well, I'm glad she got you down here because if not, <laughs> today probably I'm talking yeah. to you. So uh, you went to TSU for your bachelor's and your master's, right? Yes, yes. 
But then why did you decide to go to U of H for your PhD? Well, Texas Southern didn't have a doctoral program in history. Okay. Yeah. And I knew that I would have to get into uh, a fairly good school. Okay. Uh, So I applied to 10 schools. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and I got into two and one school, I missed the deadline. That was Michigan state. I was really excited about Michigan state, uh, because Darlene Clark Hine was there. If you're not familiar with Darlene Clark Hine, uh, please become familiar with her, uh, because <laughs> it's in the mid eighties when she helps to create literally African-American women's history. Okay. And that is one of the most popular um, areas of United States history today. Uh, but uh, she was an extraordinary mentor to dozens of African-American graduate students. So I was really interested in uh, Michigan State. Uh, I um, even spent a weekend in East Lansing. Um, she had a program called Enhance Your Future. Uh, where they would uh, bring African-Americans from all over the country to tour Michigan State. Okay. Um, And it was wonderful. I I was like, wow, fell in love with Michigan State. Uh, But I missed the deadline. Okay. Uh, But I got into University of Houston and I got into Howard. Mm -hmm. Howard didn't have funding for me. You know, what I appreciate about Howard uh, was the department chair's conversation with me and the department chair said he shared with me that even though your GRE scores were very low, that um, your grade point average shows extraordinary discipline and zeal. I mean, look at how far you've come. Right. Mm -hmm. So here is a person who entered college with a 1.8 GPA, okay, uh, who entered graduate school at Texas Southern with a 2.8 GPA, okay, uh, who entered um, a doctoral program with their 3.5 GPA. So uh, this shows a metamorphosis of sorts, Mm -hmm. okay. Uh, But Howard uh, didn't have um, funding for me right away. Uh, the University of Houston did. And the University of Houston did not accept me immediately either. Okay. I, I, it, it was uh, kind of a battle there mm-hmm. uh, because of my low GPA and also my, my poor writing skills. You know, at that time, I was a mediocre writer. I would say a, a poor to mediocre writer. Uh, so those scholars... Uh, and educators who oppose affirmative action, their argument is it's not fair to bring in unqualified or underprepared applicants um, when there are uh, prepared applicants who are white. This is Mm -hmm. unfair. How do you balance that? Okay. How do you balance that? Okay. So I certainly was underprepared. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and two members of the graduate committee, Joe Pratt and Marty Melosi, I owe them um, enormous gratitude as well. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for uh, Marty Melosi, Joe Pratt, particularly Joe Pratt, because he recruited me. He recruited me um, um, once I got my undergraduate degree, but he also came back and recruited me uh once I uh, applied for a PhD 
programs and made the argument that here we have these pretty strong uh, Texas Southern University grad students. And we understand that there is a, a cultural bias to these standardized tests. So if you haven't been exposed to um, various kinds of logistics, right? If What does that mean? That means your logic skills are going to be very poor. If your reading comprehension skills are lower than uh, most white Americans, uh, because for whatever reason, you have not read to the degree of others. So a lot of it, again, goes back to um, environmental constraints and challenges, okay? Uh, it also goes back to structural inequity, okay? Um, it is going to be uh, very difficult. It is going to be a challenge to compete um, with individuals who um, are articulate, individuals who uh, are creative, uh, who have extraordinary uh, writing skills, right? Reading comprehension skills, uh, who are certainly prepared and praise God now in the 21st century. We have young people like yourself who have <laughs> um, the preparedness, right? So the challenges that I faced as a working class student, more and more African descent Americans don't have those challenges. Okay. Right. Um, I mean, that, that's just the reality. Praise God. Yeah. I definitely think um, it was also the time period as well. Cause my parents, they also went to college in the eighties around that time. And they were saying how they chose to go to white schools because, you know, the black schools at the time, people were kind of trying to throw shade on them and not like making them seem as they were like credible universities. And they were saying how it was still difficult to, you know, come from black schools, you know, through primary school to college. And, you know, it was kind of post segregation, obviously, but um, they, mm -hmm. they were saying no matter what they would do, like, they just felt like they were underqualified. You know, the professors were like racist and it didn't matter <laughs> what they were doing. They were just grading them like unnecessarily harder than everyone else. What, what schools did your parents attend? They went to UTA, UT, um, Arlington, not Austin, mm -hmm. um, which is close to Fort Worth area. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they were just saying in the 80s, it was just different. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so they kind of regret like not going to a HBCU because I went to one. I went to Prairie View. I know you're the, the rival school to me. <laughs> so we don't really like people from you. <laughs> <laughs> TSU, but, oh boy. but yeah, um, so they definitely wanted to make sure that um, I was going to be able to get that because they wish they would have gone because they know so many people that went and they're, you know, doing incredible. Not that my parents aren't doing incredible as well, mm -hmm. but I'm mm -hmm. just saying they would have loved to have experienced that as well. Right. But uh, again, there are reasons for why uh, these inequities exist. I mean, it is mm -hmm. extraordinary. I mean, most people don't even understand Prairie View's history. People don't understand right. Southern's history. Prairie View is the second public university created mm -hmm. in Texas. So right. in Texas, um, in, certainly in 1876, in the Constitution, uh, essentially made promises indicating that Prairie View would be a first-class institution. Yeah. It would have the same amenities 
yeah. A&M and they were tripping about it <laughs> they they purposely waited a long time to you know acknowledge our school i guess but they're they're a lot better at it now of course when we visit up there and stuff they're like oh you guys are a sister school oh but, campus know. is beautiful yeah <laughs> but the campus it's okay. is beautiful but again your your question was why did i why did i decide to attend the University of Houston. That's why I decided to attend the University of Houston. Um, but also, based on my research, um, there were scholars there who did uh, Black urban history. Uh, and I was really motivated also to study uh, African American history with those individuals. Okay. Yeah. Well, you talked about like how you didn't think of yourself as like a good student, um, but you obviously were phenomenal because you ended up being the <laughs> first black woman to receive a PhD from U from U of H. Am I am I correct? In history. In history. Okay. In history. Yes. Well, that's still an awesome accomplishment. Um, how how did how does it how do you how do you feel to have made that milestone? Well, it's kind of bittersweet because there were African-American women in the program with me. Mm-hmm. Um, my dear friend, oh gosh, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting where I'm sometimes forgetting names. Mm-hmm. Um, um, oh gosh. <laughs> it's okay. But, <laughs> One of my dear friends who's now deceased, she died of colon cancer, Marquita. Marquita Anderson was in the program with me. Uh, she died of colon cancer um, in the late 90s or early 2000s. Mm. Um, my friend, um, I'm thinking of uh, my dear friend, Gretchen, Gretchen, um, I'm thinking of her her, her married name, uh, but Gretchen teaches uh, today uh, at Houston Community College, uh, and uh, my dear friend Gretchen uh, has a PhD uh, in educational leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my dear friend Angela Holder um, is um, a professor at per, at, at She's a professor at Houston Community College as well. Um, and she finished um, at U of H. She also went to LSU. Uh, and mm. my dear friend is uh, an archivist um, at the Buffalo Soldiers Museum. So the, the point I'm making is that, um, sure, I, I, I finished the program, um, but it, it's it's important to know that there were many of us who were in the program. I mean, I think there were a cohort of maybe 10 of us uh, who finished. Some people decide, some people left history and decided to go into ed leadership. Okay. Or um, there is one young man who finished at Texas Southern, uh, went to UCLA um, and he started in history, but, transitioned into library science and got his PhD, got his doctorate in that. Um, but I'm the point, I just want to point out that I, I didn't do this by myself. 
And it, it, it is about hard work, but again, it's also important to understand that we're a village. Mm -hmm. Um, but it it is about hard work and initiative and commitment. Mm -hmm. And we hear so much about being unqualified, underqualified, that we often forget that there are groups, there are individuals who are qualified, who are prepared, but sometimes people lack the motivation and incentive to finish and will drop out. What we often don't hear is 50% of people in PhD programs drop out. Wow. I mean that so it's 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 a huge um dropout rate. You know, I I believe it's I believe it's fifty percent the majority don't finish. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and again, that that may be a um a a conservative estimate. Okay. Mm-hmm. You have people who leave the program uh before completing their coursework. You have people who are not able to uh get through the comprehensive exams. Then you have individuals who um, just decide not to finish the dissertation for some, for whatever reason. So Mm -hmm. it's not just an issue of people of African descent, not being qualified, being underprepared, right. Uh, And failing these programs. That's not the entire picture. That's the point I'm making. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then one thing that I've noticed um, when you mentioned these things is that, you know, you did evolve over time because you said that you didn't start off as a good student, but you received your PhD. And then you said you weren't mature in writing, but you also became an author. So obviously you just keep evolving over time um what what inspired you to become an author and if you can tell us about the books you've written okay so i've only written one book okay <laughs> i'm working on a, i'm i'm working on a um an anthology now and at some point uh i plan on working on a second monograph but the centerpiece for the PhD program for the doctoral program period is going to be the dissertation. So uh, I studied under Linda Reed's supervision. She was my dissertation advisor. And my dissertation looked at the Great Migration to Houston. So one of the motivations behind the, the story that ultimately became a monograph was my grandparents. So my grandparents were part of the Great Migration. So that's mm-hmm. the uh, vast, the, the large migration, okay? The Southern to North, Southern to West exodus out of the South uh, in the uh, 20th century, okay? Usually the time period is between World War One and the Black Power Movement, okay? Or World War One and the end of the Civil Rights Movement, but the reality is that we're talking about a rural to urban migration, one in which the majority of African-Americans leave rural communities and they move to urban centers within the South. It's just that we ignore uh, the migrations of people to the South. That's why you're here, right? <laughs> okay. I'm sure that <laughs> both of you have great aunts and uncles and cousins 
who left the South, but you had grandparents, right? And great grandparents that remained in the South. That's why you're still here in the South. Okay. Uh, I'm assuming, okay. I'm assuming that to be the case. Uh, But my grandparents left uh, Mississippi, Kentucky, and Tennessee uh, for Detroit uh, in the early 20th century. So I was fascinated with that story and I wanted to write about that. What was really intriguing to me was this, what I, what I found to be an irony, my grandmother uh, I only had one uh, living grandparent when I was growing up. It was my mother's mother. And my grandmother always talked to her friends about the good old days, right? Mm-hmm. Being in the South, being children in the South. And these women, they were all churchgoers. They were, they were devout Christians. They were homeowners, okay? Uh, they were retired, okay? Uh, some of them were, were widowed. Uh, they had children who who worked, um, and for me it was like, well, if the South was so great, why did you leave? Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, that's interesting. Um, so I wanted to understand that story because my my grandmother died my first semester of college in 1984, mm. so I didn't really get to have those in depth conversations with her. Growing up in the 80s and 70s, you know. Mm. My grandmother, you know, created a demarcation wall, right? And you did not communicate with parents and elders uh, the way you talk to your your, your peers. Your, right. Your, so my grandmother would have said, none of your business, probably. You know, this is mm-hmm. grown folks' business. Mm-hmm. I would like to think that maybe as I got older, she would have felt a little more comfortable talking to me about these issues, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, uh, (laughs) different time period. Yeah. But anyway, as I uh, got into college, graduate school in particular, I was really fascinated by this. So my master's thesis uh, at Texas Southern looked at three subdivisions in Houston. I looked at how those areas in what is now considered the greater third ward, how those areas turn from white to black. Okay, so kind of looking at the desegregation process, but with desegregation came white flight, came business flight, right? Uh, Economic uh, change, okay, Uh, which uh, wasn't always good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and now in the 21st century, a lot of these areas are experiencing gentrification, um, which um, which is. Um, affecting African-Americans, sometimes in a a, a bad way, right? If you don't have the ability to pay high taxes, then you're going to have to leave, even if you are a a landowner, a a property owner. But anyway, I was fascinated by uh, that reality. I was also interested in something else. My my friends in college, I'm still friends with, um, with these individuals. My friends in college... Um, they were from Houston, they were from Dallas, they were from San Antonio, they were from New Orleans. Right. Some of them were from small places in East Texas. But I, I was fascinated by the fact that they had these connections throughout mm-hmm. East Texas or throughout rural Louisiana. So even mm-hmm. if they were from, my friend Letitia was from Houston, she had relatives in Louisiana. My friend Kimberly was from 
Galveston and she still had ties with her family in Galveston. Um, Natalie was from San Augustine, but she had family members in Dallas and Houston. And I was like, wow, this my friend Andre was from Dallas, but he had family from places outside of Dallas. My friend Pam was from Dallas, but her parents were from Timpson, Texas. So I was fascinated by this. This is really interesting because it was very different from my experience as a Detroiter. As a Detroiter, I knew about Detroit. Okay. That was, I knew about Detroit. I didn't know about, I didn't know about suburban Detroit because the, the, the ratio demarcation lines were that fixed. Mm. Now, if you were middle-class, um, you often lived in suburbs, but still not to the extent that you see now. The, the, the sub- suburban, suburban Detroit is much more integrated than it was 40 years ago when I was growing up in Detroit. It, it was, the lines of demarcation were fixed. I didn't know it. I didn't listen. I only knew about the West side of Detroit. I didn't really know about the East <laughs> side of Detroit. Okay. Uh, so, and, and I certainly didn't know about rural Michigan, right? So the center of gravity is going to be the cities, right? Detroit in particular, um, Grand Rapids, right? Saginaw. But you also have individuals and families that live in rural communities. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about uh, those communities, those farm areas, individuals, whereas my friends did. And I thought, wow, that's a trip. That is because of the great migration within the South. That's because African-American Southerners who decided to remain in the South, they just moved from small towns, small cities to medium-sized cities to mm-hmm. larger cities. Listen, people, 120 years ago, Houston was a po- had a population of 40,000 people. Right. It was considered a, a, a very small city, a town. Okay. I mean, and again, in 30 years, Houston becomes the largest city in the state. Mm-hmm. And then after World War II, the largest city in the, in the South. Mm-hmm. But the, Again, that's an evolution that happens largely because of the great migration, not only of blacks, but the great migration of whites, the great migration of Tejanos into cities. Okay. Even immigration from Mexico helps to spark, okay, um, what we see as the fourth largest city in the country now. So that is how I ultimately came to do this research. Um, and I said, I graduated in 2001 and 13 years later, the book came out, took me a, again, <laughs> I'm a slow pokey. It took me a long time to get that book out, mm-hmm. but, but, but I mean, that, that is the subject of my book. Um, is it still out? Are we still like able to like purchase it? Oh yeah. It's, it's in paperback, uh, with Texas A&M university press. Uh, and it's in, you can get it in a Kindle form. Okay. okay, in an iBook form. So yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the paperback uh, version came out in 2017. So it's 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 doing fairly well. Still, it's selling. You know, I, I, it, it's, it's still selling. So I'm, I'm very pleased about that. 
And we have to go on Texas A&M's website to purchase it or like... No, no, no. You can go, you can go to Amazon.com. You can get okay. it as a Kindle. You can get it as a paperback. Okay. You can get it as a hardback. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So did you... um were Oh, well, you said it took you a while to actually finish the book. So in this time, like you had already become a professor, right? Yes. So what made you uh come to Sam Houston? Very good question. Okay. So <laughs> I had just passed my comprehensive exams and I passed my comps. Wow. In 1995 and my colleague, Ernest Obadelli Starks um, was um, a lecturer in the history department at Sam. And I believe he started out as an assistant coach. I mean, Ernest was a high school teacher and he was also a basketball coach because he played basketball in, in college and high school. Uh, so he was recruited, I believe, um, to do some coaching. And I believe he was recruited by Jim Olson. Okay. Um, who recruited me. So Ernest finished his PhD in 96 and was recruited by Texas A&M University uh, to come over as an assistant professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Jim Olson, Dr. Olson recommended, uh, or, or Jim Olson inquired with Ernest about classmates who might be interested in coming to Sam to serve as lecturers and recommended me as a lecturer. And um, there were maybe about three or four of us who applied for the position. Now, unlike most positions, although, let me back up a little bit. So I, I came in as a lecturer and this is in the 1990s. So it wasn't uncommon for Sam to have significant numbers of lecturers, individuals who only had master degrees. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, that is still very much the case uh, in many departments, right? So, so English uh, relies heavily, for example, on lecturers to do, I think, those beginning English composition classes, okay, whereas Mm -hmm. the uh, established professors tend to uh, teach um, the more established literature classes, the the advanced classes. Uh, So that wasn't really uncommon. Um, So Jim Olson came to the University of Houston and interviewed me, okay, because at the time I didn't have a car. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and, and was very nervous about that and um, set up an interview um, at um, in, in Huntsville, okay, at Sam Houston State. Um, had an interview. We went out to lunch. Uh, had a luncheon with the department, and I cannot remember. Oh, I think it was a Mexican restaurant. Our department loves Mexican restaurants. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mix, mix. And um, I found out that I was hired. Um, it was a big step for me uh, because, again, I had just passed my comprehensive exams. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So it just got to that hurdle. And now, okay, um, I am kind of entering um, this world of full-time employment. You know, so up to this point, I've always been a full-time student, full-time student as an undergraduate. Very different now. I mean, now a good number of students um, are full-time students, part-time employees, full-time students, full-time employees, or part-time students, full-time employees. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the case for most of us in college. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would say most of us were full-time college students. Uh, And in time, uh, people would kind of transition into part-time positions. But getting a full-time gig um, and uh, still working on the dissertation, wow, that was was pretty scary. That was uh, (laughs) a big deal. Uh, So I came to Sam in uh, the spring of 96, because I I asked Dr. Olson if I could have a semester to kind of prepare and kind of start my dissertation research, because I was starting (laughs) my dissertation research. So I I am here at SAM because of James S. Olson. There's no question about that. Okay. Um, Dr. Olson um, was um, someone who um, was grounded in this idea of diversifying faculty, uh, integrating the campus on the side of faculty. We're still grappling with that, you know, as as an institution, as are most institutions in the United States, and not just in higher education, okay? Um, We can kind of look at many arenas, and we can see that we're still grappling with this issue. Um, But... Uh, yeah, James Olson kind of paved the way for me to to come here um, in the 90s um, and uh, really set the ball in motion for uh, me to transition into an assistant professorship position in the fall of 2000. Okay, wow. <laughs> it's a big process. <laughs> well, now that you are at SAM, we kind of want to talk about more of, you know, how it is as a black woman here. So how do you feel like, does it, you feel represented amongst, you know, the professors? Cause I know as far as I believe there's only two black history professors on this campus. Right. Um, There's myself and Dr. Willis Oyugi, who Mm -hmm. is brilliant. And I hope at some point you have the pleasure of interviewing him Um, Mm -hmm. am I represented? Yes. Um, I think that, I I think Abby Zink, um, former, former, our former Dean, Dean Zink did a phenomenal job of recruiting talented Mm -hmm. African-American scholars. Okay. So we have some extraordinary scholars uh, in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, mm-hmm. uh, but we also have some extraordinary scholars who have departed. Okay, uh, Dr. Howard Henderson, um, who uh, earned his PhD here um, in criminal justice, 
became an assistant professor, was recruited, uh, received tenure, uh, was an editor. He, he is still an editor. He's at Texas Southern now. He's no longer here. He's at Texas Southern. Mm-hmm. And uh, heads Texas Southern's criminal justice program within the College of Public Affairs. Dr. Lehman Basil was here for two years and was a brilliant, is a brilliant, gifted uh, philosopher of race, brilliant scholar uh, who is no longer here. Uh, and um, there are numerous African-American professors um, who have been here, who um, are now gone. Uh, my dear friend and sister, Yvonne Davis Freer, um, was here and is now um, a division chair at San Jacinto College. Um, but again, uh, Dean Zink. Uh, really did an extraordinary job of recruiting uh, talented scholars. Okay, so um, we have Timilola um, Salami and Courtney Banks, Dr. Courtney Banks, Dr. Timilola uh, Salami, uh, who are in the Department of Psychology, brilliant psychologists. Okay, uh, Dr. Michael Arrington. Um, is in the Department of Communication Studies, brilliant scholar, uh, as well as Dr. Yugi. Um, these are scholars who um, came into um, the college under Dr. Zink's leadership. So I, I, I think we are represented, but at the same time, I think it's imperative and important that students see a totality of Blackness. And when I say a totality of Blackness, I think it's important for students to see that there are scholars across the spectrum Mm -hmm. um, who are well represented. And there are African-American scholars uh, who are across the spectrum. One of my dear friends from college um, Dr. Raphael Gallo, Dr. Joseph Raphael Gallo um, is in the Department of Sociology. And Raphael and I were friends at Texas Southern. We've been friends for 30 years. Uh, and Dr. Gallo um, has a PhD uh, in urban planning. Uh, but because of his genius, and I hope uh, at some point you are able to interview him because of his genius and creativity. Uh, this brother is able to teach uh, criminal justice classes as well as sociology classes because he has the background in mm-hmm. those areas, um, having uh, a graduate degree in sociology, okay, having worked extensively uh, in criminal justice. But it's it's really important that we provide the resources and tools to ensure that we have uh, professors of color uh, at this institution. And and Sam is the, the diversity here is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Uh, 25% of the professors in the College of Sciences are professors of color. Okay. Primarily Asian. I mean, but, but, but that speaks of the diversity uh, that is here <laughs> um, that uh, certainly can expand. 
And there is no greater confirmation of that diversity and how it has strengthened the campus is to look at students, okay? Uh, Diversity among students is extraordinary, okay? I think students of color uh, are 40, 45%. Mm-hmm. Okay, of the student body. Let's let's Try say maybe. I'm sorry, my phone Uh-oh. does. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, but students of color are uh, maybe 45 percent of the student body. I mean, black students are 18 percent. Hispanic students are 25. Actually, Hispanic students are 26 percent mm-hmm. of the student body now. Okay, so we're we're touching on 50 percent. International students are five percent of the student body. Uh, so that representation is there, okay? And that's you. Uh, Dr. Dean Hendrickson has done a phenomenal job of recruiting talented students of color um, in the graduate program. There's no question about it, okay? I think mm-hmm. when I first came to SAM, I want to say Black students were maybe 3% of all graduate students, and now... Students of color are at least 20, 25%, maybe actually I think more. I think black students might be uh, 17 to 20% alone. So there's extraordinary diversity, okay, here on this campus, okay? Uh, and it is important. I, I think among staff members, I think blacks are maybe 10% mm-hmm. of the body of staffers that are here. And I think for faculty, I think it might be 3% maybe. And that might be including lecturers as well as um, established assistant professors, associates, and full professors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting, interesting. So um, I want to talk a little bit more about like discrimination on campus. I know, especially with what's going on, you know, with the past election. And I mean, this is a smaller white town (laughs) where Sam is at anyways. So did you ever like face any discrimination on campus, maybe within faculty or students or anything like that? Well, I mean, I mean, this is a good question. And the anthology I am working on focuses on the experiences of African-American women historians in Texas. Um, And these are going to be autobiographical sketches in which people will talk honestly and openly about their experiences, the totality of their experiences. So, of course, yes, you experience what you perceive to be racism. Mm -hmm. The the irony is that here is the reality of this, I don't want this binary, this racial binary that we Mm -hmm. live with, that white Americans may not see their actions as being racist. Right. Whereas you may see the actions of others toward you as racist. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many would consider uh, your um, passion for speaking out, for talking about race in the classroom, um, for integrating your personal experiences in the classroom and and not necessarily personal experiences pertaining to the racial binary, but just personal experiences, period. They may see that as inappropriate or talking about race um, 
constantly when you're talking about United States history. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people will see that as reverse racism. Okay. And so, 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 so we live in, we live in this uh, period of binaries. So Mm -hmm. uh, the examples I give for uh, racism, um, I think also sexism plays a role in these issues as well as class coming Mm -hmm. from a working class background. I know that I am going to have anxieties and insecurities that individuals who might be fourth generation college graduate may not experience. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas on the other hand, because I am comfortable in my skin talking about my issues, my life stories, Mm -hmm. grappling with these issues and and speaking honestly about insecurities I still grapple with, speaking honestly and openly about anxieties, Mm -hmm. racism, my perceptions of race, my perceptions of class. Um, And we live in a society that oftentimes likes to sugarcoat everything. And we want to put on the persona of unity and brotherly love and sisterly love when underneath the surface are real tensions and real problems. Underneath the surface, uh, there's real trepidation about these ideals. So certainly um, you're going to grapple with these issues. Um, I remember, let me give you a couple of examples. I remember when I first moved to Huntsville when I first started teaching. This was in, I think this was in the spring of 96. Um, Our department was actually located for a period of time in uh, dorms. And these dorms are gone. You've never seen these dorms. So where the atrium is, there were dorms. Um, And I think at one point, maybe these were dorms for graduate students. I, 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 again, that's, that history is before my arrival here. Uh, but we were in, I think we were in frail, but, but one time I locked myself out of my office. So I left my key in the office. So I'm trying to think, I don't know if the main office was open. I often stayed over overnight um, or, or I often stayed, uh, on campus late. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, working. I can't remember if this was a Saturday. I don't know, but I contacted the police and indicated that I left my, my key, uh, mm-hmm. and locked out of my office. So I can't remember if I had my mobile phone in my pocket. I, I can't remember that, but I locked myself out of my office and it was after hours and the police let me in. I showed them my ID Okay. Um, but I noticed that, and I, and I lived maybe walking distance, 10 minutes away. I lived in, um, let's see, what were the name of my apartment? Wood Creek, Wood, Wood Creek Apartments. I was in Wood Creek for a long mm-hmm. time. My mom and I were in Wood Creek for a long time, but so, so I was able to walk to and from campus, um, because at one point I didn't, uh, drive. And then at that point I did drive. Okay. But 
then I lost my ability to drive because of my vision. But mm. I noticed that a police car followed me. Um, and this went on for months, mm. followed me from my apartment to campus or followed me. I might be, some, I might be at Walmart and I would see a, a, a car follow me. I mean, wow. it was just really weird. And this went on for months. So I can't prove that this was the same officer, but obviously mm-hmm. there was a perception that I was up to no good, mm-hmm. that I needed to be watched and monitored. Wow. Um, that was r- weird. But that was happening under the radar, right? Yeah. It wasn't... Mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't... Uh, aware that I was on some kind of watch list. I, mm-hmm. I, lo- I literally locked myself out of my office. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a historian of race. So I, I talk about race in the classroom mm-hmm. all the time. I mean, I, I, I still do. I, I've, I've tempered my conversations a little bit in my freshman classes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, but I still talk about race. Um, but yeah. Oftentimes, I would talk about race in my freshman classes or even in my upper level classes, and students would speak with my colleagues about um, what I talked about, and colleagues would express their um, discontent and anger with me. Wow. Wow. Um, audacity. Yeah, that, that, that's, and I went through that all the time. Um, and it's pretty painful. And, um, I know that there were senior faculty members who would say, well, blacks are 12% of the population. So you should really talk about blacks 12% of the time. (laughs) So I don't know. Well, we may be 12% of the population, but what about our contribution to this country? Exactly. Political institutions, when it comes to culture when it um, comes to uh, geography. I mean, the ways in which we've contributed even to science and technology, the way we have contributed, mm-hmm. uh, the way we've helped build this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, oh, just 12%. But a- again, that is pretty insensitive, insensitive and insulting. Very. Right. very you know. um, and, 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 you know, one time, oh boy, this was in... 2003, uh, my sorority, I'm a member of Sigma Gamma Rho sorority and oh. my sorority brought, uh, what is his name? The brother who is over the new black Panther party. Uh, oh. let's see. Brought him to campus. He is a regular commentator on Fox 26 News. African-American guy. You guys know who I'm talking about. I'm Googling right now. Oh, gosh. Brought him to campus. And, and we actually invited um, a number of people. Uh, Ada Edwards, I think we uh, invited, but she was not able to come. We inv- And again, they wanted, this was for Black History Month. So uh, this was a panel uh, that was going to kind of look at racial issues. 
Oh gosh, I I, I mm-hmm. cannot believe I cannot think of this guy's name. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but and these in the panelists uh, were uh, giving were given a, a speaker fee, and this mm-hmm. particular panelist received a thousand dollars. But there were oh, wow. colleagues stopped talking to me for the whole semester. What? Stop talking to me. And, and, uh, and, you know, what, uh, what is this guy's name? You guys know who this guy is. <laughs> uh, he's a commentator on, you know, uh, Fox 26 has this um, commentary in which individuals from varying political persuasions talk about a particular topic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one person has one um, ideological slant. The other person has another ideological slant. So he's right. part of that all the time. Um, so when issues um, come to the surface, racial issues come to the surface, he is one of the first individuals there uh, to maintain peace, uh, to ensure that families are being uh, fairly represented. Mm-hmm. You guys know who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, but but anyway, he came to campus and people were angry with me. <laughs> mm-hmm. for and, and that was, again, very painful. Um, and I know that if I say things that People disagree with me with uh, people just stop speaking to me. And, yeah. Um, I, I, and, and, and the reality is that I, I, I feel terrible about that. I, I don't, I don't feel good uh, that that's happening. Um, I know that when I have conversations um about race um, with students, with um, parents of students, with colleagues, um, that people can easily get riled up if they don't agree. But we are never going to move forward. Exactly. And this is just my my perspective. We're never going to move forward if we do not speak honestly and openly about these issues. Mm-hmm. Even if we're troubled, even if we disagree, we have right. to be at a point where we are comfortable in our own skin. Now, let, let, let me say this, that I have to look at this from varying perspectives. And if you are a Christian mm-hmm. and if you are constantly bombarded with uh, talk about wow, why are white Christians supporting uh, this particular president? And and your perspective, mm. your perspective is, I sincerely believe that abortions are wrong. Yeah. Or I believe that Western culture is under assault. Yeah, I may not have those beliefs. Right. You know. Uh, although I, I, I see myself as a Christian, but I, mm-hmm. I, I may not have those, I, you know, 
I, I may have a, a perspective that's different. Mm-hmm. The key is trying to find a way to come to some reconciliation. And again, if you are, if you feel that over and over and over and over again, you are hearing all of this on the other side and, and you feel you, you, you try to make strides, you, you, you try to extend yourself and still, okay, uh, people uh, continue to uh, talk about white racism. They continue to talk about structural inequities. Well, part of the reason for that's, for why that's happening is these individuals find themselves faced with that. So here's another here's another part of the puzzle, and again I can, I can speak openly about this. So um, mm-hmm. talking about being a woman of color from a working class background, um, often feeling insecure, uh, feeling enormous anxiety, feeling inferior because again you've been told this over and over and over and over and over again. You are going to believe this. You have to work extra hard to remind yourself that you're not inferior, even right. though you're playing catch up. So mm-hmm. if you if you want to know why is it that you were able to write a book? <laughs> why is it that you were able to finish uh, graduate school? Because you work hard. What does that mean? That means that you have to put everything else to the side. You have to concentrate on your work. That means you have to teach yourself how to write. That means that even if your professors are going to tell you, Bernadette, you should already know how to write. If you can't write, that's not my problem. You have to get an editor. And that Mm -hmm. means that your colleague may decide, uh, your senior colleague may decide, okay, let me edit your work. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And again, I'm talking about James Olson. Uh, Or um, you are, again, from this working class background and... Um, when you are in the presence of your white colleagues whose degrees come from Ivy League institutions, right, um, from elite uh, British institutions, um, from the major, major uh, flagship institutions in the United States. And you know that these individuals are brilliant because of the work they produce, right? And But they are reminded of their talents. And even if, if people grapple with insecurities and they do, all of us have insecurities that we know that this racial binary has kind of Mm -hmm. created an institutionalized structure that places African descent peoples at the bottom. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I can speak from experience. You have to Constantly remind yourself that Please you are not. Your device for this. You are not. I'm sorry. Oh God. It's okay. Uh, you are not inferior. That you, right. you have to work. You have to work harder. Mm-hmm. You have to work harder than other people. That means sometimes you are up all night grading. You are slow at getting your research and writing done because you spend so much time editing your students' work. You do that. Because you didn't get that as a student, okay? Mm-hmm. You want to you want to show your students that it is going to take initiative and hard work, but with hard work, with determination, with zeal, with commitment, you mm-hmm. can over you can overcome these obstacles. But it is going to have to rely on hard work and initiative. 
Yeah. Okay. But that means <laughs> the back, the, 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 uh, the bad side of that is you're going to be slow at getting your scholarship done. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're getting your scholarship done, but not as quickly as, you know, others. Um, but it also means that you're playing catch up. And that means that you may be playing catch up for the rest of your life. But guess what? Mm-hmm. That in this world, God gives you the abilities to work hard and make those inroads. Mm-hmm. And again, I've been doing this over and over and over again. So for me, it's about mentoring and ensuring that I can pass the baton to someone else. And to if I can share my experiences with others, your generation, Mm-hmm. That means that you won't have to grapple with some of the same challenges I've right. endured. Right. I would totally agree. Um, back to what you were saying about just like how some people might be uncomfortable. I feel like for sure, I, I don't want to say just people of color, because even then there's layers to that. Right. I would right. Ma- mainly just say black people, you know, typically when we talk about, you know, those serious things of racism, they get uncomfortable because I guess it makes them feel bad and they don't like feeling uncomfortable. So they get upset and they just don't want to hear about it. Or maybe it's because they're secretly a racist. I don't know, but it's, it's a whole bunch of things. And I feel like, I don't know, they just try to add like, well, if roles were reversed and it's like roles, they, that did happen. Like, what are you talking about? But (laughs) it's just, it's just crazy to me that people, it's insane, but I'm happy that, you know, you have been able to overcome all of that because it's inspiring to see, you know, despite the odds and everything else, because there is still racism going on. I know some people try to act like, no, it's not happening just because they don't see it, but it's like, no, it is. And it may be a subtle you know, but it's still happening. You know, you can see it in the neighborhoods, you can see it just everywhere, even in the school system. So right. it's just, um, right. You know, right. Naeem Akbar is a psychologist, a University of Michigan trained psychologist in the late sixties, early seventies. He came up with the subfield of African-American psychology, and he makes the argument in his works that the last bastion of structural racism that Blacks have to overcome is really internal Mm -hmm. structures, internalized racism, internalized hate, that um, it is psychological slavery that inhibits our progress. So it's about responding to the various aspects of injustice mm-hmm. and the responses vary. Some people just give up. Right. Some people retreat. Some people will internalize the negativity. Some people like myself, I've been known to negative, you know, to internalize the negativity. Oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? I can't speak well. I mm-hmm. cannot articulate myself. No wonder my colleagues see me as incoherent right. or stupid. But the reality is, you know, the next day I get back up and I continue to fight. I continue mm-hmm. to work and I work hard and I've produced good scholarship. Right. Okay. right. Regardless of the negativity and the negativity is going to be around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Forever. 
forever. Well, we could talk about this forever. <laughs> Honestly, we could go on and on and on, but um, we're going to go ahead and wrap it into this one last question. Um, so what advice would you give Black students that, you know, attend PWIs? Um, and what advice uh, do you have for those same students that might want to pursue their doctorates and, you know, become a professor or whatever direction they're trying to go into? That's a good question. I would say it's about working hard. Mm -hmm. And one thing I recognize uh, at at SAM among young people uh, is that sometimes people don't want to do their very best because Mm -hmm. that means that you are going to have to put in more time right in your work that means that you just don't spend okay well i i've allotted an hour to this and an hour to that no that means you right. might have to put in two hours wait a minute i've got this party that means you're gonna have to miss the party wait a minute wait mm-hmm. a minute we've got a pledge meeting you've got to miss that <laughs> well there are yeah. there there is a myriad of, of of factors that i think get in the way and inhibit our ability to uh really do well it's mm-hmm. interesting because black women on our campus at one point we were actually number one when it came to uh, I believe when it came to um, retention and and, mm-hmm. and and I I think now sixty five to seventy percent of Sam Houston State students graduate okay um, and that number is about that that number may be a little higher among blacks i i i think it may be about oh maybe 60 i haven't looked at the data in a while but so let's say maybe about 60 percent, and maybe among african americans it may be about 61 62 percent it's within that ballpark so students are graduating right but it's what what's what's crucial to understand that we need more students with graduate degrees. We, we need right. students to go on and pursue those advanced degrees. But that means that while you're in undergraduate school, you've got to work hard. Yeah. School has got to be priority. So when I was at Texas Southern, I can say that school was always a priority. And I did pledge a sorority, uh, but I wasn't really active in... I wasn't really that active in my sorority, okay, mm-hmm. uh, because, um, in, in fact, I had to repledge the sorority because I, I never my my payment wasn't made. Oh gosh, oh <laughs> uh, lord! So, so, so when I so I repledged and formally uh, pledged um, in the nineties when when I was here as a as a lecturer, um, but mm-hmm. the point I'm making. I wasn't really involved in NACP and I mean, I was really, I was always a full-time student and, 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 and many would say that's a cop-out because we need students to be involved in these organizations, right? We, we, we need to ensure that the work of the NACP continues, the work of the National Urban League continues, right? The work of Black Lives Matter continues. We understand that, but in the end, your education is priority. That's first. And if your education is suffering because you're pledging, that's a problem. Right. And if your education is suffering because you're 
so involved in these leadership positions in Black Lives Matter, NACP, uh, Black Student Alliance, African-American Student Alliance, okay, uh, sororities, fraternities, that's a problem too. That's, Mm -hmm. I I, I cannot stress that enough. School's got to be a priority because while you're in college, you're learning to grow intellectually. You shouldn't expect to be on the same level. That means that if you are having problems with a particular subject, it means you need to spend more time understanding, pursuing that subject, that subject matter. And that Mm -hmm. means you're going to have to spend less time on extracurricular activities. Okay. And I guarantee you, I know, I know this from experience. When you put in the work, when you put in the muscle, okay, eventually you begin to understand what's happening. Your intellect grows. Okay. You become empowered intellectually and not Mm -hmm. only intellectually, spiritually, you become empowered, you know? So I I would say that school has got to be priority over everything else, over everything else. (laughs) Everything will fall in line. I know that sounds kind of (laughs) corny. No, it's true. It's true though. (laughs) Definitely true. And you got to, and you, and if you want to, um, enter graduate school, you've got to work hard for that. And and now uh, it appears that many graduate students are competing more so than they were 30 years ago when I started, when I applied to grad school. So what does that mean? It means you've got to have an application that stands out. Mm-hmm. So a lot of applicants stand out um, because they have publications. Find a way to publish what you're doing. Okay. Um, I think uh, the podcast you're doing is a good way to kind of build um, your curriculum vitae. Mm -hmm. You've got got to find nuanced uh, and creative ways to stand out. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We've really enjoyed speaking with you it's been great thank you very much it's been an honor yeah so just wanted to thank you for showing us sam houston from your point of view if you're interested in stories like these and want to know more about the black community at sam houston state university please stay tuned for more episodes (laughs) 